Hello and welcome to another episode of Soundstage Access, a podcast that brings you in-depth to discuss many of the complex, beautiful, and creative sides of filmmaking. I'm your host, Brando Benetton, and my guest this week is Morten Tilda, a Norwegian filmmaker who received his first Oscar nomination for directing the 2014 drama The Imitation Game with Benedict Cumberbatch. Morton's directing credits also include the 2016 sci-fi Passengers, starring Jennifer Lawrence and Chris Pratt, and the upcoming limited series Defending Jacob, a gripping, character-driven thriller about an assistant district attorney whose world is shattered when his own son gets charged with murder. In our conversation, we dive deep into exploring Morton's evolution as a director the impact that films like The Imitation Game and the Oscar nomination that followed had on his creative process, his transition into television with shows like Jack Ryan, a deep dive into the experience of shooting Defendant Jacob, and much more. If you'd like to hear new content, hit that subscribe button to find all previous episodes from Soundstage Access. But now, without further ado, let's go to our conversation. First off, I want to say congratulations on Defending Jacob. I watched the entire season over the weekend and it was so beautifully crafted. It's a nail-biting rollercoaster of an experience. You know you should be very, very proud. I mean it. Oh, that's that means a lot. Thank you so much. That's uh <laughs> I have, this is one of my first interviews after this one came out. So we're, we're kind of like nail biting now, waiting for all the reactions. Trust me, they're going to be very good. So before getting to Defending Jacob, I wanted to discuss your experience transitioning from feature films to television and in general, your evolution as a director. You started out working in Norway back in the early 90s, but I think it's fair to say that 2014's The Imitation Game might be the project through which many of the listeners became familiar with you. I wanted to ask you a little bit, not just about that experience, but also Passengers and the Jack Ryan TV pilot, all of which seemed to gradually be growing bigger in regards to action, scale, and ambition. What did these American projects teach you about yourself as a filmmaker? And looking back now, what were the lessons learned that you feel got you ready for when Defending Jacob came along? Okay, wow, yeah, big question. And first of all, I think that as a filmmaker, you never know what's going to be your next project. There's never like this decision that like, now I want to do this. Oh, my, my agents will ask me, what do you want to do? You want to do a drama? You want to do a thriller? You want to do a sci-fi? You want to do historical? Next, like, I don't know. It's all about, you have to find a story that sort of like do something to you on a personal level. I was doing Passenger, it was very fascinating because it was the definitely the biggest budget I had. It was both a very intimate movie because it was two actors. Big scale and a lot of visual effects. Doing Imitation Game, period British movie, which was, you know, English not my first language. It was scary in itself. And then Jack Ryan is doing, you know, something which is very American. It's a character that everybody has a relationship to the uh, Clancy books, which also feels like sort of like an American hero in many ways. So they're all very different. And I really like that as a filmmaker, that my next project feels different, that you challenge yourself. I love going into something so that I'm not really sure how I'm going to do this, but this is what I'm going to find out and diving into something. And uh, all of these have something which is very dear to me as, you know, on this, on the story level. And I think that I have evolved. It's not a really a conscious choice going so like, now I'm done moving, now I want to do TV. It's more like, there's so many good scripts that's come now that's in TV. Streaming has become so interesting and doing a limited series was such a 
tempting thing because it's sort of like the cinematic novel. If you adapt the book, Imitation Game was also based on a book. Jack Ryan is, of course, a reimagination of, of a literary character. But it's like doing a movie based on a book, you have to make a lot of hard choices. You have to get the novel down to like two and a half hour. With a limited series, you sort of like can stretch everything out. It becomes more like you can really do the book justice. You can go deeper. You can be more complex. And I think that was very fascinating. And that was one of the big appeals for me to do a limited series now. That's what you're doing here, the top secret program at Bletchley. You're trying to break the German Enigma machine. What makes you think that? It's the greatest encryption device in history, and the Germans use it for all major communications. If the Allies broke Enigma, well, <laughs> it's turned into a very short war indeed. Of course, that's what you're working on. But you also haven't got anywhere with it. If you had, you wouldn't be hiring cryptographers out of university. You need me a lot more than I need you. I, I like solving problems, Commander. And Enigma is the most difficult problem in the world. No, Enigma isn't difficult. It's impossible. The Americans, the Russians, the French, the Germans, everyone thinks Enigma is unbreakable. Good. Let me try, and we'll know for sure, won't we? Well, let me ask you about that, about your collaboration, not just with the producers, but also the showrunner, how you guys chose to manage your resources. In what way do you feel like the project evolved from the way you thought you were going to direct it to the way it ultimately became? First of all, we wanted to approach it as a long movie because that's all kind of like the only way we could. I mean, in all honesty, it bumps a little bit because you're dealing with a lot of studios and other, they're used to show like this is a TV model. TV model has several directors. There's a certain kind of rhythm, there's a showrunner, there's, the, there's a whole system that's been in place. Now comes the limited series that has one director, it has one writer, it doesn't have a writing room. Like all of these things which you usually associate with TV, we didn't have. Everything is kind of like just like an extended movie. And that also has some challenges and there's something which you gain from it that you don't have if you have several directors and, and everything's more spread out. There's a focus to it and it becomes more personal. So it's, it's kind of like interesting to be part of, I mean, the first big millimeter series just came from a few years ago. We're still sort of like learning how to do this, how much resources it takes, how to develop it, how are they different than episodic TV, which have several seasons and several directors and needs a different machinery. Of course, it's not sustainable as one director to do several seasons of this. You will burn out. It's, it's, it's a really, it's a lot, a lot of work and you need to be prepared a lot. And also I think Mark would need a writer's room if he had to do several seasons. He could do it because it was limited. But it's a, it's a very interesting thing because nobody's really knows exactly what it needs. We're kind of like figuring it out while we're doing it. And that's, that is very interesting. Benedict Cumberbatch expressed how great you are as a director in regards to holding the narrative of projects and contextualizing any given moment. So as you're talking about now about the scope of a project like this, you know, what comes to mind, I wanted to ask you about your creative relationship with your AD Katie Carroll and your cinematographer, Jonathan Freeman, and how you guys schedule you know, a limited series like these because all production film and television shoots out of order. Sometimes you choose by actor, by location. How did you work with your cinematographer, your first AD to understand, even if you're shooting out of order, I'm sure on an emotional level for you and for the cast, you gotta try and be gradual in a way and make sure everybody knows at every given time where in the series we are. I mean, you're completely right. It's a lot of in regular TV, you would shoot maybe two episodes at a time. 
It will shoot two episodes out of order, and then we go to the next two, and then we go over to the next two. It is very rare that you shoot everything out of order, because it's a lot. So when, we, when I said we're shooting that as a movie, that's exactly what we did. You shoot it completely out of order. And we also had to do it because of the weather and the seasons, because it's this series starts in April and then it ends in February, the year after. So we had to sort of like juggle that as well. It goes through a whole, almost a year. So we broke it down. I worked with Katie, who also comes from movies. She actually uh, was an, also an AD on uh, Mystic River, uh, the Clint Eastwood directed uh, film, which was one of our inspirational films. So that was kind of funny. And uh, Jonathan is such a phenomenal DP and uh, expectation was for it to look and have the production quality of a film, but we have to shoot it much, much faster. And John Freeman has come from TV shows like Game of Thrones, Waterwalk Empire. So he is used to shooting fast, but having incredible production quality. It was a huge challenge, but I think the people he was hardest for was probably the actor. Michelle's first day, she had scenes from episode one and eight on the same day because we had to be able to shoot out that location. That location was available only those days. And her character is at that location in the first episode and in the last episode. And she's gone through a tremendous character journey. We had all the scripts written, which is also in TV. Sometimes you write scripts as you move along. You might not even have your whole season of scripts. That's why you have a writer's room writing while you're shooting. This is also, again, why it's similar to the movie, that you actually have all your scripts done, which is also fundamental because the character, you can really talk about the journey. And we had some rehearsal time. We were able to read through a lot of the scripts for the actors so they know where they were heading as a character. But yeah, it's really hard. And, and it's also with the shooting time. Yeah, it's like in the morning, you know, you're doing something when you are episode four, where you are frustrated and feeling isolated. Then after lunch, you do something from episode one where everything is good and bright. And then at the end, there's a small scene where you're in bed, which just comes right at the end where you're desperate or sad or crying. Well, I got, it's like you're jumping between emotions like that. I, I can just tip my hat off how incredibly focused and hardworking and able to jump between these extreme emotions as, as the actors were. As a director, I try to help them as much as possible, try to protect them, but it is challenging with all this material and jumping between all of this. That is the biggest difference, I, I, I have to say. It's, it's the, the volume of, of material you have, to, you have to produce and how out of order it is. What was interesting about the visual language of the way you approached it is that even though you may be repeating it over and over and over, there's always a new setup. What that does in a scene is that it makes it feel fresh because the camera is always bouncing. I'm interested in asking you if you have found a way of whether you begin with close-ups to capture motion as your day goes on and people get more tired, you step away into masters or do you sometimes do the opposite? It really depends. I mean, by the way, you actually pinpointed one of the things I'm very happy you, you, you did, which is what I like to call movement through cuts. A lot of the scenes had a lot of different close-ups. So if there's a scene between them, you're not ping-ponging between the same shots. You, you're creating an illusion of movement. I would tell the editor, I don't want you to ever cut between the, the same shots. There should always be, and you should, there should always be a feeling of movement, of, of flow. And this is something we did in some of the longer, more intense scenes, because this is a courtroom thriller also. And both being in the, in, the, in the courtroom, but also being around a table discussing the case, there's a challenge of how to make it interesting. I hate when the camera moves too much when it's not motivated. Like camera movement should follow characters. It should follow the mood. It should be very specific. Just moving because you don't want to be still, it's, it's, I, I feel it's very lazy. 
So we decided instead of doing that, we shot close-ups, which is like, now this close-up is how one character is looking at him. Then this other close-up is us being very close to the character. Then this other, so we shot a lot of close-ups with longer lenses and other characters being dirty, which were connecting, which was sort of like from Chris's point of view, how Michelle was. Then we had what we called our special camera, which was like a wide angle, which we did kind of high up and really close to them. Like the camera was literally this close from the, from the actors, which where you feel very intimate to them. You were really with them. We, we did a lot of these choices to try and make it more dynamic. So it doesn't just feel like that you're ping-ponging medium and, and, and close-up shots, which is a, a lot of TV does, actually. And when it comes to what order, it kind of depends. Sometimes I talk to the actor. If it's more a bigger scene with several actors and you have to choreograph and you have to rehearse it, I always start with the whites. Always. Because you need to have your geography, you need to know where you are. Also, you learn so much, you feel the flow. Because you have a plan coming in, and most often that you have to change that plan. One thing is to sit there, you know, in your hotel room or in your home and video DP sort of like make some sort of like diagram of how you think things should be. But then the actors come in and they always bring something and they have a different idea. And then there's a flow to the scene that changes. So I like to use the wider lens, trying to find the scene there uh, before I go in closer. But there are also scenes where, especially a lot of the scenes where Michelle, where there's a breakdown, there's a big emotional scene. You should talk to the actors. You want to go in tight first. Come with it now, or do you want to play it out wide a few times so you your character can find the scenes and you can feel confident about the scene and then go in close? It all, it all depends. That's the beauty of directing. It's like there's no absolute. You have to sort of like go into every scene is a slightly different challenge. Some scenes has a lot of extras. Some scenes has a very specific, like we said, okay, this is going to be focused on doing a long shot with Steadicam and choreograph it that way. This scene, we might not even do big wides masters. We all, we all do in one movie in camera. So it, they all have different challenges and it differs from scene to scene. But as, as a general rhythm, I like to do the wider shots first because I think it's important to find it. But then I might go, you know, the intimate close and then I go back out again and do two shots or traveling shots and stuff like that. We're sailing towards an iceberg. This little white peak in the distance getting closer and closer, but really it's been underneath us the whole time. It's nothing worse than a kid. We have some bad news on the case. The print we lifted from the victim is from your son. There's gotta be an explanation. They go to the same school Jacob's in his class. Yes, we know that. Lynn, have you arrested my son? Before we begin, I want to make something clear. A kid your age charged with first-degree murder <laughs> is tried as an adult. I swear I didn't do it. We believe you. You have admitted to being in the park, and a fellow student alleges you had a knife you would bring to school. I guess so. They're saying he looks smug and remorseless. This is gonna follow him around for the rest of his life. It's a mistake. We're gonna figure it out. Do you have any doubts about Jacob's innocence? No, of course not. Where is the knife now? So you've been lying to me. I did what any parent would have done. Can't leave his fate up to the courtroom. My only job now is trying to protect our son. I want to keep things spoiler-free for audiences because there's a lot to enjoy. But I wanted to ask you, how many days did you guys shoot in Mexico? And was that at the beginning or the end of your shoot? 
That was at the end. That was something we, we decided that it had to be. You could not have shot Mexico at the beginning because we needed to find the characters first. We shot five days in Mexico. We're not going to spoil anything, but it's, I am, I'm very happy that you think at the end of seven, you know what actually happens. And then <laughs> eight begins, and then there's a whole hour of material going on, and it takes some unexpected twists and turns. And, and uh, I'm, I'm very happy with that. And I will also say the ending of this show is different than the book. So it doesn't help if you read the book, you don't know what happens. I was honestly trying to search the thematic pattern in the characters in your projects. What's the through line? So Alan Turing in The Imitation Game, Jim Preston in Passengers, Andy Barber in Defending Jacob. I look at your work and see protagonists who are in a way feeling isolated, who are looking for love or a human connection, but are most time views as different or misunderstood. So I was wondering over the last 30 years in the business, what have you learned about the kind of movies or projects you want to make? And what has the conversation been like with yourself in regards to work you have produced and the work you're still looking to produce? Oh, that's a great question. And I think you're absolutely right. I also have a movie which was sort of like my Scandinavian breakthrough movie, which was Headhunters, which is about the same thing, which is a, uh, a headhunter, a man who doesn't think he's worthy of being loved. I think there's something that really appeals to me. These characters who's not typical, who are a little bit on the outside, who... Uh, also end up in these extraordinary circumstances. Like Alan Turing was slightly on the spectrum, genius who suddenly had to win a war. The impression was suddenly woke up alone on the spaceship. You know, Andy Barber has to believe and defend his son who is accused of murder and go against everything. He is someone who is job it is to convict people. Now he has to go against the whole system that he is uphold. He has to go against it. So it is something very interesting where you take a character and throw them up on, you know, as deep water as you can. And, and, and I think that there's, there's something about, which is explore as human, what's possible for us? What, what, what's our moral limits? There's shades and gray in all of us. We all have darkness, right? I don't believe in that some people are evil. I don't believe that some people are just good. I think that there are, these forces are fighting inside of us. And I think that there are circumstances that bring out these different things in us. And, and I think that's what's interesting to explore. I like to think of what would you have done? And it's interesting to find these characters who do extraordinary things or do extreme things. And I think it's also a question of what would we have done ourselves to put ourselves in that place. And, and I think that's kind of a common thread to a lot of the things I've, I've done. And I think that's also common thread to a lot of stories, which are interesting, is unique characters who's been put in extraordinary circumstances. There's something that Mark said, which I think is so true, that when it comes to defending Jacob, uh, as a parent, you are a prisoner of the unconditional love you have for your child. That unconditional love overrides all your moral compasses. That unconditional love is so strong that pushes you to do things you never thought you would do. And you can't stop it. You cannot not love your child. It's a very strong force and it's very interesting. And it's like, I'm a single dad to a 12-year-old boy. It, it becomes very personal. Both of us are p parents. This is something we will explore. And it's what we're willing to do to protect what we're willing to live with, to save our children. And also our marriage, our partner, our, you know, there's also a love story in it. So that is something that really appeals to me to this, that all of these stories has an intimacy to them. You're intimate with the characters, but at the same time, there's a big backdrop of big events going on, which there have to be thrown into. And I, and I think that's something I really like as a filmmaker to explore. 
Morton, you've been so generous with your time. I can't recommend this enough. So thank you again for your time so much. And we wish you really the best with everything. Okay, I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. And there you have it, folks. Thank you to Morton for taking the time to call in. 42 West, who arranged this conversation, and to Eric for doing the final mix on all of these episodes. You can stream Defending Jacob on Apple Plus starting April 24. If you enjoy your program, please help us by taking a moment to subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. Make sure you find us on Facebook and Twitter or send your favorite episode to a friend to help fellow cinephiles and new listeners find the show. I'm Brando Benetton, and you have been listening to Soundstage Access.